Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I have as my guest, Doug C. Brown. He's a highly acclaimed sales revenue growth expert. And Doug, would you mind giving us 60 seconds on your background, please? Sure. Thank you for having me here, Marcus. I started working at the age of three for my father, sweeping floors for 25 cents a week. Uh, I worked with dad for about uh, 18 years, then went into the military, then- uh, 25 cents? 25 cents. <laughs> 25 cents. But, you know, back then you could buy a lot of candy for a penny. So I was the most, <laughs> I was the most popular kid on candy day on Friday. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, I went into the military. I spent a lot of years in the military, came out of the military. Wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. So I kept bouncing around in college left and right, which, you know, university was fun. 10 years into that, my brother said, Hey, what are you going to do with your life? So I decided, you know what, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll finish some degrees. I did, but then I, I really couldn't find jobs in my <laughs> chosen field. So I ended up going into sales. I had been selling my whole life. I just didn't know what formalized sales was because my dad's business was a family business. You know, he thrust us out in front of clients at age five or six, and we were selling from that point on. So I, uh, eventually I went to telecommunications industry and I ended up working for a company that was a startup company. And I became the number one representative in the company. We sold that company actually for $2 billion. Yeah. So I collected my money, got out of that. In the process, I was, uh, I was supporting all kinds of companies, different industries. One of them was the training industry. And I ended up landing with uh, a man named uh, Jay Levinson from Guerrilla Marketing, Jay Conrad yeah. Levinson. I did some work for Jay on the business side. And then he introduced me to Chet Holmes. I did some work for Chet, eventually became his president of training and sales. Then from there, Tony Robbins came along, wanted in on the company. So I became Tony's president of training and sales, as well as Russ Whitney and a bunch of others. So a lot of work in the training industry, but I've worked with now over, I think it's 300 plus industries. Excellent. Okay. Well, I've worked in 500. So one of the things that that range has given me is the ability to join the dots in ways that people without that kind of breadth aren't able to. So one of the things I'd like to kick off with then is how has that range uh, enabled you to identify patterns of self-destructive, self-sabotaging behavior in the sales process? That's a great question. Here's the thing. We're dealing with people, right? So <laughs> no matter what industry they're in, they're people. And people really aren't that complex. They can be more complicated, I believe. So generally, most business sales challenges come down to lack of process. And usually that comes down to somebody not really on the people side. They're not enforcing process. They're not creating process. They're not standardizing process or what they, you would call over in Europe a process, right? So we okay. Americans took English and changed it. But usually it's a people issue. You know, I mean, it's people are emotional and they all have childhood wounds and they're all trying to live out their childhood wounds and, you know, solve those through the, the process of uh, selling. And that's what I find is the number one challenge, usually where a lot of the blind spots start coming up uh, and they show up in the process first. So let's talk about those blind spots at a leadership and management level. What are the common blind spots that you come across at that level that prevent businesses from being able to achieve their potential? <clears throat> On the leadership level, 
most of the time it's not they're not connected to actually what's happening within the organization. That's one of the things that I find they're they're being directive. They're directing down, but they don't understand that they don't have the operational capacity to do it, or they don't understand that their salespeople, you know, are not sales DNA hunters of that type of sale, or they're trying to push them to, you know, for example, how to, you know, go after large sales, really extremely big sales. And they're trying to do it on a one-to-one relationship and they don't understand something like it has to be done on a multiple person peer-to-peer sale. So on the leadership level, that's what I find. On the executive level, what I also find is they're just, they're pushing directives without putting process in. So they're pushing everything down to the middle management or the lower management to get it all done. And, you know, hey, that's worked for a long time. But what I help companies do is be much more efficient and they optimize the whole process. So once we start getting the process settled from the top down, so everybody's clear, communication is much better and things tend to grow at that point. I do see huge problems in companies um, with uh, a tendency, like you said, to focus on this or believe that selling is transactional. But with enterprise, it's anything but. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm working with a number of clients at the moment and the shareholders are saying, well, it's, you know, you guys can't be selling it right. But these are 12 to 18 month sales cycles. And there are, on average, we've identified about 11 different stakeholders that are involved directly in the decision. And trying to get all those moving parts to work in unison is really tricky. So what advice would you give to some poor struggling middle manager who's being given it with both barrels from the top and struggling with a sales team that perhaps isn't really uh, geared towards enterprise? Well, <laughs> I think there's two different things. So you have the, the, up, the upswing for, to the executive branch at that point of the company. Now he or she has to solve that. And that is usually... I find getting all parties involved to come up with a common goal, common plan. Now on the side of the salespeople, if they do not have, because there are different types of salespeople at Marcus, as you already know, some are not good at hunting. Some are not good at handling executive level conversation. They don't even have the skill set to do that. So the first thing on there is we need an assessment of who we have Because if we're going after large types of clients, do we actually have the team that can actually close them? We then have to get the sales team aligned with the other members. Let's say they're engineers or HR or whoever it's going to be. So that because in an organization, because there's people, they look at sales teams a lot of times as, oh, those people are just lazy or those people are the people that make a lot of money, but they, they have the easiest job in the world, et cetera, et cetera. So we have to get everyone aligned and get the the company positioned right to actually go after these larger companies. Because a lot of times when companies ask me, they go, oh, we want to, you know, we want to hit these, you know, fortune, whatever companies. The question is, are you an A player that can actually handle that type of business? (laughs) Can you actually sell to that type of client? Do you understand what they go through? Because it has to be a peer-to-peer sale. I, I see this very often in organizations that there is this fixation with the quarterly, uh, end of quarter target and quarterly reporting. And what I see is so many managers being put under pressure 
to hit the revenue target no matter what. And they're already pretty terrible at prospecting consistently because, you know, if, if you go into almost every sales floor in, you know, the early hours of the day, so between half past seven and 9.30, essentially what you can hear is the clank of spoon on cereal bowl rather than people prospecting. And so they inevitably end up with a weak, inconsistent, empty pipeline full of half prospects or non-prospects because of the way they're targeted to go. And they're, they're targeted and measured on number of dials, number of meetings, number of demos, number of proposals. And what, what struck me over the last 10 years in particular is how People's behavior is driven by what they're measured on and how they're compensated. And it seems to drive some awful behaviors. And from a management perspective, they're pushing like crazy to get revenue in this month or this quarter, which is stripping out the already half-empty pipeline anyway. So you end up with this massive burnout and turnover. How is it that that can consistently persist without someone eventually cottoning on to this shit doesn't work. Well, it persists because they do turn over and burn out, right? So they're, they're recycling and bringing in new people, which is expensive to an organization to do that. I mean, when they, when they dump off their sales team. And the other thing is, is that type of company, again, I'll go back to the A player, right? A lot of times people are asking me questions like, how do I hire the top, the best salespeople in the world? Well, are you actually an A player company? Because that's what they're looking for. And any company that's having this extreme turnover, burn, churn, is not probably an A playing company because A player companies hold on to their salespeople uh, for a long period of time. I mean, you take somebody like salesforce.com, they have people there that have been there from the beginning and they're making, you know, millions and millions of dollars a year in the salesperson's, uh, on the salesperson side. And what I found is in working with so many companies, Marcus, and I, I suspect you have too, is the master prospector will always outsell the master closer. And sales is not just a number. It's a number of quality. And so a lot of times people don't look at how do we, how do we qualify a lead? Like a lot of companies, they, they don't lead score leads, right? They lead score them potentially coming in on the marketing side, but not on the sales side. Is this a good lead to actually be able to close? What are the characteristics of this particular lead? What do we want? What is the higher quality? What is the lower quality? You know, which one should we be focused on? Because, you know, if you make 300 dials in four days, are you making quality dials? Are we on to a, a, a target that actually can buy? Or are we just on to a target? So a lot of times when we clean these type of things up, this is where you know, management right now and salespeople and the organization in general, based on what you were saying, is working harder than they need to. And they'll, they'll stress out and burn out over a period of time doing that. And then you'll see churn and burn and that's high turnover and high expense to the company. Dr. Phil McGowan, who is actually a doctor of sales, uh, he is one, and he has estimated that it takes roughly three years for a company to recover when they lose one of their top salespeople. And it takes anything up to three years. Sorry, that's 30 months to recover. Um, and it takes up to three years for a salesperson to hit their full stride. So if you're burning through salespeople every year, you're never even coming close to their potential. 
And that kind of burnout sends really bad message about your reputation as an employer. I mean, lots of people come to me and ask me for help to get a job. When they're talking about the com- a lot of the companies that they're being invited to go for interview for, they're being put off by these statistics because they don't want to be just another burnt out cog in the wheel. And it sends a terrible message to the customer. Salesforce recently came on to the podcast and we did a, a live presentation on their latest research. A formula that they came up with, which I think everybody should pay very close attention to, is customer success equals customer outcomes over customer experience plus employee experience. And if you don't understand that, and it's not rocket science, the customer outcome is far more important than the customer experience because people buy or rent outcomes. Mm -hmm. Um, But the people who have to deliver that outcome in terms of the entire team, not just sales, but pre-sales, post-sales, customer success, marketing, operations, finance, if they are not fully engaged and happy, then it reflects in the way that customers are treated. So let's spend a little bit of time talking about customer success and revenue growth. What what are the three questions that people should ask you, but they don't? (laughs) The three questions they should ask me, but they don't in general are, how do I get this done if I don't have to do it? (laughs) A lot of times, like on the executive level, especially, right? So if I don't have to do this, how do I leverage to get this done regardless? Now, even a salesperson has so much on their plate throughout the day that they're drowning. So how do they get their follow-up done if they don't have to do it themselves? How do they get more contacts going, more referrals going so they don't have to you know, do it themselves? And the reality is that a lot of people don't ask that particular question. And I find that when they do, they start coming up with ideas on how to leverage because every most people are looking for working leverage. The other thing that I think is really important is people don't ask the question, I started this by accident. I started saying, okay, how do I grow by 10% a year? Magical things happen. <laughs> it's because not only does it force us to grow, but it gives us new ways of looking at things. And again, usually process is the number one thing that I see with a, with a challenge with most companies, but people, you know, people are not taught how to do things. Now, you know, going back to customer outcomes, uh, my gosh, how the customer actually feels after investing with that person or investing with that company is one of the greatest outcomes that can come about. So, you know, the third question that I would pose to people is how do I be a little bit more kind, a little bit more generous, a little bit more helpful to everyone that I come into contact with on a daily basis? It never ceases to amaze me, Marcus, when, when people within companies are just being kind, trying to be helpful, that it doesn't differentiate them. It makes them different because most people aren't doing that. They're just doing the routine of, you know, hey, I'm filling my job. Uh, and I'm not really, you know, providing that customer journey that everybody talks about, but, you know, few deliver. Interestingly enough, I interviewed a super saleswoman, a lady called Caroline Pino at Splunk. And because uh, she got cancer in her first year and had very limited energy, 
in October, she smashed 300% of quota and wasn't ready to even stop at that point. But one of the qualities that she has is a really, really high EQ. And everybody she speaks to, she finds out about them as human beings. The net result is the discretionary effort she is able to encourage people to give, where they have no direct personal gain from uh, contributing to any one of her sales or any of her accounts, is massive. And with maybe two, two and a half hours of energy a day, she's going to finish this year at around 340%. Now, that's pretty impressive when you're only working at 25% of capacity. That's extremely impressive. Yeah. So pay heed, be kind. It costs you nothing. And also be genuinely curious and interested in other human beings, which again, I think, A lot of managers seem to fall short on this because they tend to focus on the task and they forget the human being that has Mm. to implement it. And I think COVID has woken a lot of people up to this fact. I'm not sure many have adapted especially well, given the uh, likely poor performance of many uh, sales teams. But they weren't asking questions like, well, how are you? And finding out how their families are. Because that goes an awful long way in the recruitment process, in the onboarding process, humanizing the whole thing. And you know, recruit for things that you cannot train. Uh, and these are qualities like high empathy, really good listening skills, and someone who's genuinely interested in other human beings, curiosity. And I see so many organizations just simply uh, recruiting uh, against the job description that they just fired the predecessor from. Yeah, they're focused on top line, right? So they're looking at numbers on the top line, most of them, and saying, okay, well, if we do this, we're healthy. But <laughs> we, Well, that, that's really interesting, though, because I, I see this in a number of vendors and how they treat their partners, because they just focus on the number and they don't spend time up front or throughout the relationship finding out why those uh, founders set that business up. Uh, They don't spend time with the salespeople trying to understand what kind of life they're uh, hoping to be able to create for themselves. And as a result, they don't get any discretionary effort. They're just an interruption. Look, there's so much to unpack there. It's one thing I learned in the military was how do you create loyalty, right? Because sometimes when you get into those situations in the military, it's easy to run. It's easy to get afraid and go, whoop, I'm out of here, right? (laughs) But the best loyal teams that I have ever worked with in the military, when I was in the military, was those people that genuinely cared about each other. And we knew about each other's families. We knew about, you know, what was going on with the kids. We knew if this person was going through, you know, a hard time in their relationship. And when I became a non-commissioned officer, you know, we used to have these conversations all the time. And people are very, very loyal to people who care about them. And organizations, I think, undermine loyalty. I think they look at top line too much. They don't look, they don't know what's going on with their sales teams. Heck, when I go in and do audits on their sales team, 
and I bring the information up to the executive level, a lot of times they're, they're like, wow, this is really great information. But it's the information that was given to me by their sales team. It was the information given to me by the people in the organization who have been telling me, Doug, I have been saying this for the last six years to these people, <laughs> right? So I think we, we in organizations, we certainly need to keep a hierarchy, but we have to understand that we are being led by people and the people who are being uh, led through the organization are people. And we all have wants, needs, desires, fears, and we want to fulfill things. And so if companies are able to embrace, I'm not talking about, you know, kumbaya and, and you know, holding hands throughout the, the play. I'm saying genuine connections, human connections. That's what sells more than anything on this planet is building rapport with people. So they like you, they know you, they trust you, and they'll go the extra mile for you. And I think that goes to your point where if they really want loyalty in, in a company and a better customer journey, I remember hearing this uh, story about uh, the Wynn Hotel where someone forgot their medication. They came into Las Vegas, they stayed at the Wynn Hotel, and one of the employees jumped in their car, drove 70 miles and picked up their prescription for them and brought them and drove 70 miles back. Do you think yeah. they'll ever stay at a different hotel in Las Vegas? <laughs> Never. <laughs> this again, I think most human beings don't really understand other human beings. And until people really get to grips with a basic understanding of how brains work, I think they will struggle because they will make logical assumptions that are patently wrong. The brain is a chemical reward system. And what we all seek, and we're wired to do this, is we seek little chemical rewards in the forms of endorphins and serotonin. And most of the time when people are making decisions, what they're doing is they're disqualifying stuff. So if you're not giving them those uh, biochemical uh, rewards, and what you're doing is you're uh, punishing their brain with adrenaline and cortisol. That instantly creates a barrier. The reality is that we need to become students of human behavior and human psychology. But very few salespeople do that. And you, you touched on something else earlier on as well, which is the total lack of business acumen. So, so many salespeople have no idea how to speak to the lines of business. If they're selling technology, they speak to IT people. And so they don't have that flexibility. And as a result, they jar. If they do have a conversation with people outside of their level of comfort, then they spend their time talking about IT. And right. that doesn't create the reward system. So in terms of helping drive massive revenue growth, what kind of um, processes have you put in place to educate salespeople to be able to have those human-to-human -human conversations with other human beings who are in different role functions so that, that they can engage with them on their level? I think there's several different things, but let me cue in on one or two. The first thing is, is this may sound crazy to some people listening, um, is a lot of times people don't understand why they're even asking a question. <laughs> 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 they don't understand. Harvard Business Review did a um, a study on this that I read. And I'm kind of paraphrasing, but it was like, people don't ask questions because they don't know really what their outcomes of the questions really are, 
right? It was kind of paraphrased that way. And they're not really sure why they're asking the questions, but they're asking the question. They're just having chatter. You know, going back to the rewards of the brain, I absolutely agree with you. I have studied this information as well, and I, I agree. And, you know, a lot of times salespeople are asking questions so that they feel empowered. They're not asking questions that are empowering the people that they're trying to influence. So when they're, when they're, they're feeding their own brain get, to get that reward, and what they're doing is they're breaking rapport a lot of times. You know, when I teach people how to handle objections, they go, how do you handle objections? Because I wrote a book on that, as, as you know, Marcus. And the first two rules are take a breath and breathe and relax. And, and then second is get curious, not confrontational, right? Because when we get curious, and this is the thing that I teach salespeople all the time, how do you get curious? Because we, they're people that have grown into larger bodies. So they're children that have basically grown into larger bodies. We all are. But we we love curiosity, but we we tend to give it up unless we, you know, we go see a movie and we're in there and we're like, oh, I was curious how it's going to end up. Or um, but you know, I remember, you know, my daughter picking up a butterfly and looking at that butterfly for it seemed like eternity, maybe five, 10 minutes. And she was just looking and trying to figure out how does this thing fly? What is this thing thinking? My gosh, look at the, the colors on this. I wonder how they're, you know, colors, you know, are their family members have colors like this? Just asking questions, you know, which we are taught in sales are called open-ended questions, right? But just asking questions of genuine concern. I've asked people, you know, questions once I get to know them that others would, wouldn't dare ask them about. They'll, they'll say something regarding, you know, I don't know, a family member or whatever. And, you know, a lot of times salespeople will just avoid those. I don't because those are the things, and I don't teach people to avoid them either, because those are the things that could upend your sale and you don't even know it. Right? Absolutely. So I firmly agree that people don't know how to ask questions. They're trying to feed their own brain. They don't get curious enough in the sales side. And they don't understand what the other person's going through. They, they've never been a CEO and that's okay if they're selling to CEOs. But we must understand what that CEO go, oh, goes through on a daily basis in their life and, and, and in the business because that's how you have these conversations. If you, salespeople are talking to IT people, it's a different conversation than they're having with founders of the business, usually unless they're the IT person or a CEO of the company. It's they're thinking about slightly different things and they have different conversations and we must be able to communicate on that level, whether we're speaking English, French, German, or, you know, Spanish or Chinese or whatever it might be. We have to understand their customs, their frames, everything that's going on within their own society uh, and, and in the business context within the, you know, the world and what's going on in the company because CEOs are definitely concerned about different things than, say, even human resources, who generally reports to the CEO. Absolutely. In fact, I, I've just commissioned a couple of major projects with my clients specifically to understand the different nuances by region and geography, but also um, by archetypes to ensure that we understand how best to communicate to the different stakeholders within the buying committee, because we know that there are pre-COVID, there were typically seven uh, plus decision makers in an enterprise sale. 
since COVID, that's bumped up to 11, mm. uh, according to Victor Antonio that I heard last week. Now, when you've got seven to 11 stakeholders who are involved, they're all different personalities. They've got different needs and wants. They are measured in different ways. And the problem is that if you treat everyone in the same way that one size fits all, then it's like the spam that gets into your inbox because you inadvertently signed up to a subscription list. And I mean, you know, it's Black Friday. How many Black Friday emails did you receive this, uh, this time around? Way too many. And those that I didn't even subscribe to. <laughs> and how many of those did you actually read? One. And did you buy anything from it? On that one, yes, because it was something that I previously wanted to buy anyway. So it just came up as a sale. Okay. So that, that was the trigger that caused you to buy, but you'd already gone through this process. And the process, Bob Mester describes it in Demand Side Sales really beautifully. He says that what happens is you go through a sequence and the sequence starts by making space for finding a, a solution to a problem. And that might go on for a day, a week, a month, two years, five years. And you live with it until such a point where you start to think, oh, this is a bit irritating. And then you start looking passively. And after you've started looking passively, the problem may just escalate. And then, then you start to look actively. And when you start to look actively, what you're doing is you're creating a compare and contrast of all the different options. And then what you do is you disqualify out and the decision is made on what's left. And then you make your decision, you buy or you do a proof of concept and you start using it. And um, if it's not helping you solve the jobs that need to be done, you don't carry on with it. If you do, then what the, uh, the customer is looking for is progress. And you need to be clear through your questioning what type of progress the customer is trying to make and where they face struggling moments. Otherwise, it never turns into a habit. And th this is one of the things that really amazes me that so few salespeople have any understanding of that sequence. And what they think is people buy product, they don't. They rent the outcome only mm -hmm. for as long as it meets their uh, desired need. But managers seem to be propagating this drive to keep talking about the product, offer a discount, slice your margin at the end of a month or quarter, educate the buyer to always wait until, like you, you, went, you were going to buy it anyway. And the trigger was, that's too good a deal to miss. Right. And the thing about discounting, a lot of times salespeople don't understand this because they're, they have not sat in the other side of the chair, right? So when a salesperson discounts down, what they don't realize is they're not, they're giving away profit, number one. Yep. And they're working harder. Now they look at it and go, well, I'm just hitting quota, you know, so I'll just sell at any cost. I'll hit quota. But everyone else is working harder because you're discounting down because it takes X amount of sales to make up for the loss of that discount. And then when the, with the, the loss of that discount, it then takes X amount of sales beyond that first X amount of sales to actually make a profit of the money that they actually just gave away on the discount. So now here's the deal. I think 
you know, a lot of times what would be really helpful for sales teams, and I do these exercises when we're we're doing any type of training, which I, I don't do a lot of, of training, more revenue growth. But when I do training, I get them to think like a business owner. I get them to think like a CEO. We run scenarios that are on and around. It blows their mind because they've never, never sat there. You know, like even simple things like, Marcus, like I, I remember because I built so many companies in my life, especially early on, because I just didn't know what I wanted to do. So I kept building companies all the way through, <laughs> even when I was in the military. Right. But I remember one time thinking, oh my gosh, I got to make payroll. I don't have the money coming in. <laughs> what am I going to do? I can't go to these people and tell them, I'm sorry, I, we don't have the money coming in. It's coming in in 60 days. I couldn't get a credit line to, to bridge it. Right. So pulled it on my credit cards. So that's a scary moment for somebody who owns a company thinking, my gosh, we're going to go into debt to pay people when we're already just barely making it until we get our money flow coming in. So a salesperson generally, unless they've been in those positions, do not understand that fear. And when you do understand that fear, you can relate to the other person as a human being because you know exactly what they're thinking. So I, I recommend that people put themselves in positions where they actually understand who they're talking to. What does that IT director actually feel because a lot of times, you know, when I was in telecom, I, I dealt with IT a lot. And so, you know, early in my career, I didn't understand what they felt. But then I went and read some books. You want to talk about a boring subject to me. You know, telecommunications engineering. Mm. <laughs> I, 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 read, I read three of them and I was like, oh my God, I am so bored. But it did give me the understanding of what they're going through. And so then when I started talking with them, I could speak their language. I could speak to what they're going on in the organization and how they're underappreciated in most organizations. And here's the reasons why. And when you can relate on those points, I'm not talking about commiseration points. I'm talking about human understanding of how they feel about when they're in their position making decisions, which we as salespeople are influencing. And I think you brought up something so key. What's the progress they're trying to make? I think a lot of times salespeople just forget. They, they're just like, oh, product service, got to sell, got to make quota, got to, you know, I got pressure on me. They forget that the client is trying to make progress. And as you said, they are renting an outcome. And they'll always rent the outcome, but they'll own you if you're the right salesperson. So when you move from one position to another position or they have another need come up, they're going to call you back when they trust you as a person. Absolutely. And if you don't earn that loyalty, then you're always having to start from scratch. Yep. The, the number of salespeople that I see who are essentially starting their business anew every month or every quarter because they haven't understood people. And all, the, all human beings want to be heard, to under, uh, understand that someone else feels what they feel and to feel understood. And that's, that really is the essence of selling. And I think it's one of the most fundamental skills in life. It's to show genuine empathy and curiosity to another human being. We're, we're pack animals. You know, we haven't evolved a huge amount in the last quarter of a million years. And nothing's really changed. It's always been the case that people need that. And you, you know, to, looking back at your time in the military, 
uh, there will have been officers who really paid attention to that and those who didn't. Now, I'm pretty sure the ones who really paid attention to their men and to or to their troops and uh, understood what it was that was driving them, their hopes, their fears, their background, their families, I bet they got much better outcomes from their troops. Without question, we would follow those. I mean, <laughs> maybe not be the right thing to say, but there were sidebar conversations sometimes with certain people who were leaders in the organization. Hey, if we ever get into a firefight, we're going to let that person be exposed, right? Yeah. So it's like versus, hey, you know what? We're going to take care of Smitty no matter what happens, right? We'll, 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 we'll go in there under heavy artillery and drag him out if we have to, right? Because he's, he's part of the team. He's part of the, the family. He's one and, of us. Yeah, absolutely, right? And there's always, there's always that, that, you know, you want to keep a, a, a level of respect amongst people and show leadership. So for executives, you know, having the respect and showing leadership because, you know, people do want to be um, directed, especially under times of duress, right? They want to know what to do, but they want to feel like they can rely on that person. That's why people, you know, you're trained to do that in the military. You're trained to, you know, run toward a machine gun firing at you when I was in the army. The first time I did it, I was like, what the hell am I doing, right? They went through my head, (laughs) But, but we kept rushing toward it. Right. So the same thing in organizations, I'm not talking about manipulation. I'm talking about human connection to drive outcomes. And I 100% agree with what you're saying. And if organizations just could embrace this, and again, you know, a lot of them are afraid to because they think that they're going to cross the friendly line. Right. So, well, if we're so good to these people, then, you know, they won't need us anymore or they won't respect us or whatever. That's not true. A lot of it's just you keep it professional and you you help the people become loyal and then teach them what to do and how to work in the sales play so that they're working with other people outside your organization, i.e. they're selling to, communicating with and, you know, teach them how to do proactive, you know, constructive communication, not you know, destructive uh, communication, just simple things like that on how a CEO, I've not, I've seen one or two, I should say, CEOs who have actually come into sales meetings and said, listen, guys, here's how an executive team member like myself thinks. This is what we face. And um, I think one of the best I've ever seen do that, uh, there's two of them, uh, you know, a Arunas Chasonis from a company called Paytech Communications. I worked under, you know, him and I remember having these conversations and he would come into the sales team meetings and he would actually talk about what's going on in the organization and how they're feeling up at, up at the headquarters, right? Those type of things. Uh, Russ Whitney is another gentleman that I see do this a lot with his, with his people who runs uh, Whitney Enterprises. Um, you know, they were at one point a, a billion dollar company. So there's reasons why people grow to billions, guys. And there's reasons why people get stuck. And it's usually a people or a process issue that I have found. One of the lessons that I learned is small businesses stay small because the owner keeps them that way. Mm -hmm. And I I see that a lot, that the leader is often one of the biggest obstacles to growth because either their ego, their lack of understanding, lack of compassion, focus on the inhuman side of business, And I'm stunned still 
at how many accountants end up as chief executives. And that ludicrous focus all the time on the bottom line. And uh, investors always focusing just on the money. There is truth that people are your greatest asset. But if you treat them like they come ninth after paperclips, you're going to get a really terrible experience for the customer and you're going to miss your outcomes. So it's it's self-harming not to embrace these uh, ideas and concepts. Tell me this then. You obviously have worked in a number of organizations helping to drive revenue, drive conversion. What are the qualities, the red threads that run through the best that you've seen? Best organizations or the best salespeople? Best organizations first. They're very focused on two things, marketing and sales, right? They're very, very focused on it. And that might seem like, duh, (laughs) the obvious, right? I mean, isn't that what's supposed to happen? I mean, I have gone into so many organizations that are just, as you say, they're stuck, right? Because the the owner's not clear or the the executive team's not clear on the outcome. So, you know, I have found that uh, the single first root of, of stress is lack of clarity. So a lot of times just getting them clear, but not just clear, truthfully clear. Like, is this what we really want? Absolutely. Right? Once we can get them there, then the second part, which goes back to the human dynamic of what you were just expressing, which is, can they live in in a place of ambiguity and not freak out? <laughs> right? <laughs> so... <laughs> Because what ends up happening is they, they, they're not clear about the outcome, the true outcome, not the perceived outcome. So they're driving people toward a fictitious outcome. Then inevitably, something comes up that just throws that off track because it's going to happen, i.e., you know, the pandemic right now, right? I mean, yeah. companies never had to focus as much as they do now on creating flexible budgets and, you know, employee safety as they had to in the past. So... You know, once they they get truthfully clear, then understanding that how to live in the ambiguity and teaching other how others how to live in the ambiguity is also another reason why people, if they don't understand that, they get stressed out. And I think that's one of the reasons they 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 fail to grow because they're they're thinking tactically, like you were saying, Marcus. You know, the investors they're like you know, hey, we're, this is the bottom line. We invested this. We're going to get a 7X return or 15X return. And this is it. I don't care how many people get run over in the process, right? I mean, there are certain people who invest like that. And there are others who are investors who uh, like, listen, I want to get a 7X return or a 15X return, but I want to do this the right way. Let's have a great company. So I really think that when we go into organizations and we start talking with them, the one thing that I've done right from the beginning that's always worked is I get everybody to set truthful goals. And the sales team needs to set truthful goals because most of the time, salespeople, I'm one of you, so please embrace this. You're lying to yourselves. You're lying to other people. This is why that you can't, a lot of times CEOs are so frustrated because they can't get accurate sales forecasts because people aren't telling the truth. They're literally saying, oh, I'm going to close these, you know, eight accounts and it's going to be X amount of revenue. And they know when they're setting these things that half of them aren't going to close, but they're putting them up there just because they haven't filled their pipeline. So companies who are really focused on marketing and on sales, they will have full pipelines and they will 
you know, not be playing in the scarcity game on the sales side. They'll be playing on the um, the opposite side of scarcity abundance. or abundance, right? So those companies that I see focused on on that, and then the second thing would be companies who are focused on high process. And a lot of companies don't like to do this because it steps them back a little bit. They go like, oh my gosh, you know, I just don't need to create a process on this or create a process on that. But when you have a successful outcome and you create a process on that and you get another successful outcome and you do it again and you get another successful outcome, you don't have to think anymore about what to do. You, you can innovate on that a little bit, but that process now drives the customer outcome. And if the outcome is clearly understood, then you could duplicate it every single time. It's that perfect chocolate cake recipe. So same question, but about salespeople. What are the uh, red threads that run through the greatest salespeople that you've ever worked with? The greatest ones are focused on customer outcomes. They're focused on exactly what you said earlier, which is, you know, people want to make progress towards something that they're trying to eliminate frustration, pain, or something, or, you know, go for desire to grow. The, the greatest salespeople I know focus on that and they focus on the actual individual or individuals who are involved in the, in, the, in the sales, they build human relationships. And I think this will illustrate it because I'm, I, I'm decent at doing this and I've done this pretty much through, throughout my life. I, I think I learned this from my parents. My father always taught me, Marcus, when you're going through school, pay attention to the girls who aren't so pretty at that time. Right? You know, like treat everybody with respect, but pay attention to everyone especially the people that the boys now are kind of not really looking at those type of girls. And I asked him, I said, dad, why? He said, because one day they're going to turn from what they are into the most beautiful individuals you will ever see. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, okay, dad. So, you know, I was always kind to everybody. I tried to be anyways. And I remember coming back from the military the first time I went in the military when I just prior to being 19 years old and I came back and I remember meeting some of the gals that were in, in university now, and they came back on their break and they were stunning. They were like, they, they, the metamorphosis had happened, right? So I ended up getting a lot of dates with very beautiful gals because I was just that person who cared about them throughout the, pro, the process. And I've applied this to business. I think this will illustrate it. I have a company that I've been working with now for the past six years. And I come in and I do work for them and they have doubled their company three times in the last six years. And they just called me back about three months ago and they said, hey, we're at a place now where we need to redo our playbooks. We need to have follow-up sequences. We need to have cadence. We need to, you know, we're going to hire and, and we're going to scale beyond this. And uh, we all got talking here on the executive level and we said, call Doug C. Brown. And I asked them, I said, what, why? They said, Doug, we trust you. And so I think your top performers, because they pay me handsomely, so that's, it's not wrong with that. And, they, and the other thing, when people trust you, Marcus, as we know, price sensitivity seems to wane or drop, right? It's not as big of a deal. Of course, they want a great deal when they're investing, 
But when you're positioned as the expert and you're positioned as the trusted advisor, a lot of times price negotiations are a lot different than if you're not. So I think for salespeople, the best salespeople focus on those attributes. And then they're also focused on massively creating lead flow, qualified lead flow, not just lead flow, but qualified lead flow. They're looking at people or companies that they're working with and they're, they're benchmarking them and they're saying, okay, who else can I get? Hey, I just got five times bonus on this particular account. Who else looks like this account that I could get five times bonus, right? So it's a money-driven thing a lot of times for us in sales. But when they look at this and they go after these qualified targets, they go after less targets, but they end up getting a higher conversion ratio than other salespeople. Because to me, the master prospector always outsells the master closer. It's interesting. I can't remember who told me these two questions, but they were very relevant. And I think every salesperson should ask them of their customers. First one is, what did I give you? And the second is, what's my reputation? And it's an exercise I'm going through at the moment. And it's been both humbling and educational. Let's put it that way. <laughs> because I, I've, I've come to realize that what I thought I brought to the party wasn't necessarily what people were buying. And I think as salespeople, we need to have the vulnerability and the humility to get that kind of feedback. And we've got to challenge ourselves to be better constantly. Because I think one of the worst malaises in the sales profession is that there are so many people out there who are not even order takers, they're zookeepers. They, they just about uh, keep the animals alive. And they don't educate themselves. They don't consistently improve. And what worked 25 years ago is no longer appropriate for the current market. <laughs> so you've got to make sure that you are constantly investing in yourself. And anyone who says, well, my company doesn't invest in me, boo-hoo is all I have to say to you. You own at least 50%, if not 90% of your own development. If the company happens to invest in you, that's fine and dandy. But you need to be investing in yourself. And again, if I look at the top performers, all the people that I've ever worked with who were A players, they were constantly curious. They were constantly investing in themselves. They gave me as many book recommendations as I gave them. And that's quite a lot. Um, so again, in terms of taking personal responsibility at executive level, all the way down through to uh, the sales floor, what are the qualities around personal responsibility that you see the top performers exhibit and the weak performers not? Truth. <laughs> you know, it's what some people call honesty. By the way, I missed that one. So thank you for bringing that in. You know, investing in yourself, <laughs> I mean, you have to. It's, it's part of the game. I, wor I worked with a, uh, one of the big, th you know, we had three big television stations at one time here in the United States. I worked with one of them and they had people that were there for, you know, 35 years and their revenues were dropping and they couldn't figure out why. And it's because they were trying to sell like they were in 1960, uh -huh. right? <laughs> Back then, right? But there's two types of, you know, I, I learned this from Mr. Russ Whitney, you know, when he was growing his company, I asked him, I said, Russ, what, what brought you and allowed you to scale, right? And he told me this question. 
He said, you know, Doug, I found out there were entrepreneurs and there's intrapreneurs. There are people, intrapreneurs, who love to work within organizations who will actually take on the responsibility of the job role as a business unit. And that is another characteristic of top salespeople. They look at this as it's their business. They'll even talk that language. And that they know, like you just said, you've got to invest in yourself and you've got to continuously gain knowledge. But honesty is, is, is the number one thing that I see people growing from or lack of. Because it's not just being honest in a sales conversation. It's being honest in life. Right. And um, I do this really cool exercise. Well, I've, I think it's cool, Marcus. I get them to take a business card and I say, okay, anytime you folks say something that isn't true, take your pen, just make a strike on the back of the business card. Right. And we're going to do this for just a week and then, you know, total up your numbers. Now, it's not a race to see how many people can get more strikes on the card or how many people can get less strikes on the card, right? It's just a self-assessment. And just that self-assessment turns the light bulb on for a lot of people. And I've had people come back with two strikes. I've had people come back with 147 strikes. And I remember this one gentleman who lives in the UK now. He, he was doing $140,000 a year in commissions. He came back with this card. And he said, Doug, I had, a, I had to put three cards. <laughs> I had to get two other dish, additional cards. And I said, well, what did you learn from this? And he goes, I'm a bleepity bleepity liar. I lie to everybody about everything, about anyone, right? So we worked on these concepts. And uh, a year later, he went from $140,000 in commissions to $2.1 million in commissions. Very good. Just from being honest, right? So that to me, uh, you know, or truthful, I should say. Because so we stopped lying to people because he was trying to remember, you, you know, uh, your listeners, the folks hearing this, the brain does want rewards. So just as Marcus said, so what was happening to this gentleman is he wanted that reward to his brain in the way that he got that because he was framed this way, you win at any cost. So if you have to lie, it's just part of the process. Right? You, you never lie to a prospect, customer, or a client. Always tell the truth. And I paraphrase one of my favorite lines from Mark Twain. Always tell the truth that confounds your enemies and surprises your friends. And in re uh, the recruitment process, if I even get a sniff of a lie, that's it. I want people to be vulnerable enough to be able to tell the truth. No one's perfect. We, uh, we understand that. But someone who uh, has that brittle shield and they are afraid to admit that they don't know something or that they've messed up, they've failed in role, um, th that's no good to me because that's how they're going to behave in front of the customer. And mm -hmm. that creates barriers. It reminds me of a very fine book, which everyone should get hold of, by Todd Capone, The Transparency Sale. And it's all about the impact of radical honesty. And in fact, uh, my interview with uh, Michael Brody Waite is also all about this. You've got to be absolutely candid with yourself and with others. Because if you lie to others, when you look in the mirror, there's always that slight sense of shame. Or you're a soulless monster 
And you know, you have no right to lie to your customers. If you can't do something, if your product is deficient in some area, just come out with it. Lying by omission is just as bad as an outright lie. If mm-hmm. you know that it's going to be material to their, their outcome, you have no right to sell to them. And you need to tell them up front. So we've come to the top of the hour, which has gone remarkably quickly. Tell me this. What are you reading, watching, listening to, Doug, that you think other people should really pay heed to? I listen to and I, I read a lot of a man, his name is Alan Weiss. And this is another characteristic of top performers. They sell on value. So it's not on product, as you said. It's not on you know serial number. It's not on feature. It's on value, right? The value to the client. So I, I do a lot of reading and a lot of listening from Alan because I resonate with him. I uh, Dave Curlin owns a company called OMG. Mm-hmm. And uh, Dave is a very intelligent guy. I read a lot of his blogs. Tom CRC has a company uh, called Hunt Big Sales. Tom is uh, a wonderful guy. And... Uh, Marcus, I love what you did in your initial content to me. You know, uh, you you framed referrals right up uh, up front, right? So, uh, <laughs> Tom, I think would be a great guy on the on your podcast. And then Andy Miller from uh, Big Swift Kick and uh, BigSwiftKick.com. I also read a lot and uh, talk a lot with Andy about concepts. And so, those are the four primary ones that I look at for the sales side of this, uh, since we have been skewing this toward the sales and and also understanding CEOs. All of them understand that. And it's in their material. So I highly recommend it. If you want to um, get a better handle on executives and CEOs, um, then Patrick Lencioni's books are really good. So the uh, Five Temptations of a CEO and various other books, but everything that he's written, I found to be insightful. And I'd also check out a guy called Jacques Chamas, S-C-I-A-M-M-A-S. And Jacques is a former CFO, COO of McGraw-Hill, Standard & Poor's, Pan Am, so if any of you are old enough to remember them, (laughs) um, and various others. And he teaches salespeople um, what it's like being a chief executive. I, I think there's uh, something called the Ambassador Club as well, which is a, a bunch of um, executives that come into companies and talk about what it's like to be them. And uh, Splunk is very clever. They've hired a whole bunch of people who sat on the other side of the desk. And they work with the sales team to put together their approach and to help them uh, frame their talk tracks and their questioning and their conversation specifically so it appeals to the audience that they're trying to sell to. So I cannot stress that enough, how important that is. You've got to think as the customer, not about them. And you don't think of them as an organic ATM machine that you take money out of. These are people who have hopes and fears, aspirations and goals, and they're real people. So treat them with the respect that you would expect any other person to treat you. Okay, you've got a golden ticket and you can go back in time and you can advise the idiot Doug, age 23. What choice bit of advice would you give him that you know he would have probably ignored but would have benefited from? Be the most curious and I would say be the guy in the room who 
ask the questions that no one else will dare to ask in that yeah. room. That would that would be you know because I mean as we're growing up through that those age you know <laughs> a mentor of mine uh, told me this nice guy worth about three hundred fifty million dollars so at the time he took me under his wing I still to this day I don't know why I asked him and he gave me answers and I still don't understand it but he said to me he said you know he used to call me son because he's much older than I am he said son you know when you're young like that. Your brain is like a bowl of jello. He's like, <laughs> when you first pour the water into the jello, it's it's hot and it and and when you're walking around, imagine the the jello sloshing around in the in the in the bowl, because that's what your brain is like when you're in your 20s, right? He says, as you start to get a little older, the jello starts to set. And so he said, you know, by the time you make it to your 40s, it's kind of setting. Right? He said, women set earlier than men. And I remember that lesson and I remember being in my 20s in these warrior years, right? Where I was just like out there just trying to prove myself. And I never asked the questions that were the questions of the curiosity that we were talking about, asking the questions that people would not dare ask. So if I was the younger 23-year-old self again, that would be definitely, you know, when I go to um, seminars or I go to live events and, and, you know, when we have them again or right now we're having virtual ones, I'm the guy in the room now that I just listen and ask the questions that nobody will end up asking. And it, here's the, the, the interesting part to me, Marcus. I sat in this room one time with these high-end folks and they were having all these high-end questions and I wasn't asking anything. I was just listening through there. And so I had done a lot of virtual selling through webinars for Tony Robbins at homes. I mean, this uh, we used to drive our revenue. And they were talking about how to monetize webinars, how to monetize web trainings. And the person who was running the, the event looked at me and he said, Doug, do you have anything to say on this? And I said, well, I just have a couple of questions. And he said, well, what are they? And I asked the two questions and I said about this gentleman's question here, about that gentleman's question here. What about this? And how about that? And Marcus, it was like I was the star in the room all of a sudden. It was like people just turned. I could see heads turning and it felt very uncomfortable in, in the beginning <laughs> because all these people are billionaires and everything else in these rooms, right? But they were like, this is the most brilliant Thing because what I did is I added a few million dollars to the front end of the sales process in the web training. So I just asked that question: Why are you not? You know, what what what's the reason you're not doing this? And so be the most curious person that you can be, and don't be afraid to ask questions because most of the people in the room, even if they're billionaires, are probably thinking the same thing. But they've been scripted from an early age mm -hmm. that if they ask the wrong question, their brain's going to get a negative response. There's a wonderful Chinese proverb, which I live by, which is ask a question and you're a fool for five minutes. Don't you're a fool for life. And we, oh, that, that's cool. I'm going to use uh, that. Absolutely. <laughs> the, 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 there are some fine ones that come out of China. I mean, bear in mind, the Chinese 3,000 years ago yes. had an empire of a billion people, which they managed to rule with precision. And we forget that. I mean, I can't remember who it was. It was... Chinese premier was asked, and um, what was the impact of World War II on China? Now, bear in mind, this was about 2005. And um, said, mm, we haven't decided yet. So they have this very long-term view. And again, it comes from asking questions. 
They're constantly asking questions. And I think the best salespeople, they differentiate through the questions that they ask, not the information that they give. It's really important that we learn that because you only learn something when you've stopped speaking and you allow the other person to give their view. And that childlike curiosity is one of the qualities I look for all the time in salespeople. Mm. Because without it, I think you're just humdrum. There's there's no point of difference. And in a crowded, competitive, price-sensitive market, especially now where uh, people are reluctant to spend because they're being cautious, your questions will make all the difference. So Mm -hmm. be curious. Ask great questions. Difficult, challenging, demanding questions that may make people prick up their ears and say, you know, I've not seen it that way before. So, Doug, tell me this. What what are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with? My greatest strength is I can create a tremendous amount of activity in sales quickly. And my greatest strength is also my greatest weakness because I can create so much activity that I don't, uh, even though I teach this, right? So this is being truthful, right? Even though I teach this, sometimes I forget to employ it myself. So then what I end up doing is overwhelming uh, my employees and, you know, and, and things like that. So that's my, my quest. I've, you know, I was always taught, don't, don't, uh, don't try to work on your weaknesses, work on your strengths. But yeah. I'm beginning to question that a little bit now in life because, you know, as I get a little older and my jello sets a little more, <laughs> what I realized <laughs> is that you know, my actions, because other people rely upon my decisions, uh, directly affect not only myself and my family, but it affects other families and other children and other families, right? So I think that's the thing I struggle with right now the most is, and I'm learning now to put, even though I teach this, again, you know, sometimes the mechanic drives around the car that needs to be repaired the most, or, you know, the person who can't hit the cricket ball, you know, but can coach people to be championship cricket players. That to me, that's, that's, that's what I've learned is now before I start making decisions is to start templating out the process and understanding the clear outcome of what the process needs to have. So all along the customer journey, and that's been helpful to me because certain initiatives I've said no to that I wouldn't have said no to in the past. The the ability to say no is what in my experience, defines the difference between those who are great at what they do and those who are good or average. What you say no to matters so much more than what you say yes to. Well, I I have a client now that about three, almost four years ago now, they were doing three and a half million dollars in one division. And it was pretty... easy money for them, right? Because they, they had a system going. They had to make the decision because they wanted to grow beyond. Do they keep this? Because it's an impediment to their actual growth. And they actually knocked off a $3.5 million, which, you know, the company was only $5 million at that time. So it was a pretty big decision. And they focused that next 12 months on the new initiative. They'll break $20 million this year. So nice. some, absolutely about saying no. It's as as you said, in many ways, much more important than saying yes. And that that drives controlled hyper growth. I think one of the problems that I see so often is people go through a hyper growth curve 
but they don't have the discernment or the discipline to say no. They haven't done the planning. They haven't got the processes in place. And they're not staying ahead of their growth with their plan. And so then they start to react and then they become people who compromise on recruitment and on quality. And that becomes a vicious spiral down. Oh, yeah. I mean, many a company, because they've expanded too fast without that, has imploded. Absolutely. So, Doug, how can people get a hold of you? Well, they can go directly to my website, uh, which is www.businesssuccessfactors.com. They can send me an email directly at doug at businesssuccessfactors.com or call me directly at uh, area code in the United States, uh, 603-595-0303. And if they'd like to get a free copy of my latest book called Win-Win Selling, How to Handle, Frankly, Objections... (laughs) And, and increase your profitability, then go to winwinsellingbook.com. You just have shipping and handling and we'll ship you out a book. Excellent. Doug C. Brown, thank you. Marcus, thank you. This has been uh, enlightening and inspiring. I really appreciate the way you handle your interviews. And I believe people are going to get a lot out of this. And, and so I'm very grateful to actually be here. Thank you very much. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this conversation insightful, useful, inspiring, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. If you've got questions for either myself or for Doug, then please get in touch. My email is marcus at laughs-last.com or contact me through LinkedIn. And if any of you have been listening to this podcast for a while, then please go to the Apple podcast if you use Apple, scroll down below the fold and leave a review, an honest review. It can be one star, two star, three star, four star or five star. Uh, But I'd love to get your honest feedback uh, on there as a review. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.